0: Today, we're going to continue with the Kingdom of God series, which is uh, what we're going to be on for, I think, the next couple of years. I think it'll take about 100 or, or to 150 messages, two to three years. And uh, our theme verse is, of course, Matthew six ten: your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In a lot of ways, that's the whole Bible in one verse. God's purpose from all eternity, we, last week we looked at a concept called eternal decree, and God's purpose from all eternity has been to bring the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his ta- ta- tabernacle, the fullness of his presence that dwells in heaven to the earth to dwell in a people made for his own possession, born of one regal head, to extend his glory. So um, if you wanna look at the uh, whole whole Bi- Bible in a verse, Matthew 6, is probably a good choice. If you wanna look at the whole Bible in a chapter, try Genesis 24, which is a historically accurate uh, story uh, that actually happened, but it also it tells a story as a metaphor, Abraham is the father, Isaac is the type of the son, the servant is a type of the Holy Spirit, and uh, Abraham uh, has a covenant with the servant to go and get his son a bride and bring it back to himself. And uh, Matthew twenty or Genesis twenty four is kind of the whole Bible in one chapter. So, uh, we're, today we're going to look at uh, this is going to be called chapters three C, and we're looking at the subject covenant. Now one of the what we've done already on on chapter 3 chapter 3 is major biblical themes and so chapter 3a we looked at the plenary that means the full inerrancy without any mistakes of scripture that every word every jot every tittle of scripture as Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken uh every portion of scripture is inerrant it's historically accurate it it fully communicates the The will, nature, purpose of God. So uh, the second, uh, chapter 3b, we looked at the idea of the eternal decree. If God is God, then he he is outside and above time. He created the time-space continuum for his purposes and his glory, and he declares the end from the beginning. He already knows the outcome of all things. And um, so... uh, we looked at that uh, last week. This week we're going to look at the concept of covenant. Now the Bible is a series of covenants. Uh, the very Bibles that you read have a slight misnomer that is misnamed to them because we call it the old covenant and the new covenant. And the Bible is a lot more than two covenants. And in fact, what we call the old covenant actually began in Genesis, or I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter nineteen and twenty. And continues through the rest of what we call the old covenant, but prior to that, the first covenant was is sometimes called the Adamic covenant that is named after Adam uh the covenant God made with Adam and Eve uh sometimes it's called the Dominion Covenant or the creation covenant and uh there are other names given to it as well so um but uh that uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, fell from that covenant, and uh, God uh, foreshadowed right away that He would redeem them. They tried to to uh, make up for their shortcoming by covering themselves with fig leaves, and God covered them with animal skins. Speaking of a foreshadowing that the blood of the Lamb would 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 uh, fulfill the covenant and cleanse them. Now, uh, of course, there's the covenant of Noah or the Noahic covenant, which is sometimes called the uh, societal covenant. Uh, there's the covenant of Abraham, uh, which can be called the Abrahamic covenant. Then there's the Mosaic covenant, which is what we th- usually think of when we think of the old covenant. Uh, and then there was a covenant with David or the Davidic covenant. There's the new covenant. Uh, and the Bible contains many kinds of other covenants, like Jacob and Laban had a covenant. There's a marriage covenant. And uh, uh, so forth. So the Bible is really a series of covenants, and uh, really what we call the Old Covenant would be more technically or accurately called the Hebrew Scriptures, which contains a number of covenants. Uh, today we're going to look at um, we're going to look at uh, common characteristics of biblical covenants, and then. Uh, next week. If you look at the back side of your page, we're actually not even going to get to the back today. The whole back side, I just gave you no extra charge, um, so that if you want to uh, look, at, look at what we're going to be covering in the next couple weeks, you can, uh, can read a few verses and start to read on that subject. You could actually Google something like Covenant Theology, which is uh, two weeks from today, or and uh, you uh, could learn quite a bit reading articles on covenant theology. Of course, you would find articles for covenant theology and against covenant theology. If you want a little short book that you, if you, especially those of you who read electronic books, because really it's so small, it's probably not worth uh, even ordering it otherwise. But there's a little uh, book on covenant theology that's pretty good by an author named J.I. Packer. I think it's somewhere between one and three dollars, and it's a, you know it's the kind of book you can read in less than an hour. Uh, that if you want to cheat ahead, so to speak, and study ahead on covenant theology, so you'll get more out of the message two weeks from now, uh, feel free to do so. All right, so today we're going to look at the whole the whole uh, idea of co- common characteristics of biblical covenants. Now, before uh, we do, I want to talk a little bit about Susan's covenants. Uh, in the in the uh, ancient Levant, which is uh, Le- Levant is is uh, another word for the ancient Orient. It was that uh, area that was kind of east of Italy. Sometimes people think of it as is including gr- the Greeks. Uh, mostly, they usually think of it as including the Assyrians and the Syrians uh, and so forth. Uh, um, all the way down around the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea through what was called the, the um, Fertile Crescent uh, where the Tigris and Euphrates River Valleys are, which is called Mesopotamia. Uh, Mesopotamia, meso meaning middle, and potamus is the uh, word for horse, or I'm sorry, for river. Hippo, hippo is the word for horse. Hippopotamus is a river horse. Uh, Mesopotamia is the middle of the rivers. And uh, if you look in Genesis, before, before the Noahic Flood, uh, when God created Eden, he created four rivers to go out uh, to the ends of the earth. And after the flood, everything was so altered that only two of those are, continue, and they are called the Tigris and Euphrates, and they're, they're there to this day. And uh, the land between them is called Mesopotamia, meaning the land between two rivers, now and sometimes that whole area of what is uh uh today turkey which the assyrians owned what most of it or what conquered most of it uh what is today syria what is today israel uh, what is today iraq and iran uh all the way to 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 egypt is sometimes called the ancient levant or the ancient orient one of the reasons it's important is because if you uh study history uh, if you take the, the secular humanistic histories that you would get at, say, uh, a, a public school or uh, at a public university, uh, unfortunately, probably mostly at most Christian universities, they uh, postulate that there was this time called the Neolithic period, the Near Stone Age, which is around 10,000 BC. And the truth of it is, uh, the thing matter is, is, there's very sketchy evidence that such a time period even exists. Because they're used, they're, they have a few uh, cave paintings and so forth in France. That uh, that the methods of dating them are quite sec- circular and quite uh, really are, are faulty in some in a number of ways. But what we do know for sure is that right between 3500 B.C. and 2500 B.C., full-blown civilizations blow up, uh, rise up all over the earth. In China, India, uh, Central America, uh, what's today New Mexico, Not a, the Pueblos were not as advanced as say the Incas or the Aztecs, uh, Ch- what's today Chile, all these full-blown civilizations emerge uh, pretty much within a, a century or two of what uh, would have been the Tower of Babel. And... Um, many of these civilizations, indeed the majority, are in the area we're talking about, the ancient Levant or the ancient Orient. So there were, in fact, in the in the Fertile Crescent or Mesopotamian area, there were about seven major advanced civilizations that came or went between the, the time period of 3500 BC to about the time of Christ. There was the Sumerians in all the way through to the Hittites and the Babylonians and the Medes and then the the Persians and so forth. Uh, Egypt, uh, the land of of the Nile, uh, was a very advanced civilization and it went through uh, three or four major dynasties or uh, so forth, but uh, it was a very advanced civilization as early as about 3000 BC. And these civilizations had tremendous architectural skills, they had uh they had metallurgical skills they worked with and so forth they had musical instruments, and they all had various forms of writing that's really the, that was a long way uh, talk about the whole thing just to get to this main point they all had ways of preserving ideas in writing now originally the writing was what's called pictographic that is the writing was symbols or of pictures. And uh, in Egypt, it was called, I always get this backwards, hieroglyphics is Egypt, right? And then Mesopotamia was called cuneiform, very similar to what is still exists in the Far East today, uh, pictographical symbols. Uh, Along came uh, people called the Phoenicians, and uh, the Phoenicians, approximately 2500 BC to 2200 BC, invented an alphabet that had phonics symbols and those and that's where we get the name phonics from the phoenicians and uh, uh, the greeks adopted by 2200 bc the greeks adopted uh, their own copied the phoenicians and created their own phonetic alphabet and so forth now all that's to say that there were writings in all these cultures and one of the most important way, things about the writings of these cultures was two types of documents. One is what was called mythopoeic cosmogenic literature. Now, um, uh, oh, what's that book that um, on the ancient East that uh, you were reading? Frankfurt and, uh, what, and his wife. Um, do you remember? You were just reading it a few months ago. Um, oh, and the fire... Anyway, uh, I, I, they, that book brings this this point out. Mythopoeic cosmogenic literature is, is simply this. Um, every person, every person sitting in this room right now has ideas in their heart and in their mind about how we got here, why you're here, and what the purpose of life is. And generally, most cultures contain kind of a prevailing uh, storyline of that. And in fact, in a lot of ways, the history of the Bible is the history of the descendants, first of, of uh, Cain versus Seth, later of the descendants of Shem, that is uh, Noah's son, the Shemites, anti-Semitic, still means anti-Israel or anti-Jewish to this day. And uh, Ham and Japheth were the, sort of the people of this world. And the people of this world created civilizations that had uh, an, their explanations for the, the why we're here were were based on a, an idea called myths and mythopoeic, uh, a poem, uh, myth mythological ideas. So it's not as as hard to understand as you would think. Uh, mythopoeic means they had stories of explanations. But they did not have a scientific mindset, nor did they have a modern historical mindset that started with the Hebrews and, and with the Greeks, Heraclitus and Thucydides and so forth. They, they didn't care if it was accurate. They knew it was a story. They, uh, they, weren't, they didn't have the same kind of values that we have. They didn't care. What they cared was it explained why we're here okay and then uh cosmogenic cosmos means the universe or the order the birth and genos uh, genesis means the birth so these these were stories of the birth of the universe and why we're here now why this is all important is this is this every civilization had these what's kind of an amazing fact is as you get through as you study all the ancient civilizations Every civilization had a, a, had a story of a worldwide flood that wiped out all of humanity except some hero like Gilgamesh for the Babylonians. And so um, with that, um, that became their cosmogenic, mythopoeic uh, idea of where, where everything began. Okay, now because all of the ancient uh, worldly religions were polytheistic or animistic, they worshiped and served some form of the creation rather than the creator, as Paul brings out in Romans 1. All these civilizations started with, in the beginning was water, because water is a universal symbol of chaos. All you have to do is be on, I once was uh, on a large lake in Tennessee called Lake Norris, in a very slow boat that we had rented and a big storm came up and everyone was a little bit panicked about whether we were gonna make it back to to the dock before uh, the storm got too bad for this little boat. Because when a storm comes, water has no shape or form. Okay, and so water is always a universal symbol of chaos. And a lot of ancient, uh, students of ancient times will actually say the Genesis story uh, shows evolution because it borrows the forms of ancient literature that starts off with, in the beginning, there was disorder. But nothing could be further from the truth. The whole point of all the forms and types of literature in Genesis is to be the exact opposite of what the worldly kingdoms around them were saying. In the beginning was God." and the Spirit of God was on the surface of the waters, and God spoke and created the order. And so in in uh, ancient views of history and so forth, all things are chaotic. There's no purpose. There, there's no reason to live, much like mo- modern religions of humanism and man's reason and so forth. There's no ultimate purpose. Uh, so... Uh, this is important because the Bible starts with first and foremost, there was a creator who created all things out of nothing and he created order and purpose. And there's a reason you're here. Now, the second type of literature that you need to know from ancient times was called Susandry covenants. And Susanry covenants were basically when a, uh, these happened a lot in the area known as Mesopotamia or the Fertile Crescent because there was a series of seven civilizations that one civilization after another conquered one another. And you see some of that in the Bible during the, uh, of course, the Sumerians are uh, right after the time of Babel. And then the, uh, there's the, uh, Abraham Lee's Ur of the Chaldeans who cre- uh, conquered the Sumerians and uh, so forth. And we you go through the Babylonians and and eventually the Medes conquered the Babylonians, and eventually the Assyrians conquered the Medes. And all of that's traced through the Old Testament, but it's not dwelt on because the Old Testament is a covenant history, as we'll see next week or the next two weeks, and it focuses on God's purposes in the covenant people of God. But in doing so, it mentions their interactions with the nations around them in historically accurate ways. Now, man, and any person who's studying the ancient Far East would not focus on what the Bible focuses on because many of these civilizations were much bigger and more powerful than the Israelites. They were, in fact, one of the puniest and the significant uh, from man's point of view of civilizations, although the impacts they made on on human culture lasted far longer and were far greater. Does that make sense? Now, when one of these nations like the Medes conquered the Persians or... uh, Whatever the Babylonians, Persians were later, and then the Assyrians. Uh, when they conquered one another, they imposed what's called a suzerainty covenant. And a Susanry covenant is simply this: it starts with declaring that the the conqueror is the great lord, and he's the benevolent good guy. It was to your advantage that we conquered you and raped all your women and and, uh, and tore down your cities and and so forth, because we've come to create a new order for you. Much like the government does with your paycheck today. <laughs> not, not usually as violently. Well, we've come to save you from yourself by confiscating your money. And uh, so uh, the, the, in the covenant, um, the, it was based on fear, whereas we'll see God's covenant is based on love. Because God actually is the benevolent dictator, and uh, the covenant was unalterable. You could uh, accept it or reject it. You could only reject it if you weren't conquered. If you were conquered, you had to you had to accept it. You couldn't negotiate it. It wasn't a negotiation. It was imposed. And the Bible is exactly the opposite. It it is. There's no. Uh, there's no negotiation, it's unalterable, or so forth, but it actually is um, uh, from a God who loves us, and knows what's best for us, and actually has come to liberate us. And all covenants of the Bible are that way, it, and so they stand, slap the face of the ancient suzerainty covenants, which were covenants of conquering oppression, based on fear of and political right. The idea... Uh, of political reality and all this that's supposedly a modern idea Henry Kissinger was a disciple of that and so forth Uh, uh, political Machiavelli was kind of one of the great uh, if you know the prince and so forth this is an uh, ancient idea that's in the heart of man that, that power makes right now the last aspect of the sojournery covenants is there were blessings if you obeyed. Basically, if, if your area continues to pay the tribute to the great king and, and, can, and they can he can confiscate certain percentages of your crops and, and so forth, and a certain percentage of your sons will serve in his military and all this kind of things, uh, then you will be blessed. And if you don't do that, there will be sanctions or punishments or curses. Okay, so that, that, is, um, that is basic to understanding the whole Bible because the Bible is actually uh, depicting that we were conquered by an evil Lord, our sin nature, the Adamic nature, and Satan and his d- dominions, and he works his conquering power out through oppressive states, totalitarian states like the Syrians and the Egyptians who were always oppressing God's people. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords loves you and came to set you free from all that. Now, it resembles a Sujan covenant because it's, it's using that form to say exactly the opposite thing just like the creation stories of the Bible use the same form as the cosmogenic literature of the the ancient kingdoms to slap them in the face and say the opposite message. From one true God, not from many gods, not from the creation, not from copulating in the fields and worshiping nature and, and, uh, and all that. Astronomy and all sorts of uh, anti-God, anti-Christian v- views of worshiping various forms of the creation rather than the actual creator of the Bible, Okay, of the creator of the universe as depicted in the Bible. So um, here's an example. Uh, I read this in context. In other words, take this outline home and read all of Isaiah 1, but I'm get, just a little bit from Isaiah 1, 18 through 20. Said I couldn't put the whole verse in there for you know because I always just fit whatever I can fit on front and back of a page. On uh, this today I wanted it all to fit on the front page. Uh, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Uh, um, if you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. This this is really still in the new covenant. If you haven't. Uh, god saves you by grace working through faith as you receive grace working through faith and you grow in grace you will grow in your ability to consent and obey and follow the lord and the more you do so the more you'll eat the best of life jesus said this exact same thing in john 10, 10 when he said i came that you might have life and have it more abundantly The thief comes only to kill, rob, and destroy. If you are the Lord and you're running the show and you're doing it your way, how you want, when you want, where you want, for whatever reason you want, you're actually being conquered by sinful things like pride, anger management, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, um, you you will eat the worst of life. It goes on to say, if you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. And God is warning Israel the same things that Moses had told them in Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 31 and so forth, that if you rebel against my covenant, you will be conquered and led away captive. And what that's a metaphor for and a symbol in uh, today, if you do not, Uh, obey the Lord, if you do not love the Lord, if you do not want to follow his ways, if you want to follow your ways, you will eat bad fruit from it. And you will become captive to lust and fears and selfish ambitions and and all sorts of things that are destructive for your soul. And you will not have joy, peace, whatever. And it will manifest itself in all kinds of things from inability to keep uh, marriages together, to inability to sleep, to inability to, uh, to enjoy life. Uh, God can bless you tremendously financially, but it all slipped through your fingers. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. Christ came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So, uh, Psalm 37, 4 restates this in one verse it, if you delight yourself in the lord he will give you the desires of your heart but if your the desires of your heart are not delighting in the lord woe is you if you get the desires of the, your heart many of us have attained desires of our heart that weren't that did not come from delighting in the lord and they became a curse to us right we've all done that it's called sin so now, understanding that the, the Bible follows this Susan's Re covenant formula, I want to give us eight characteristics of all, or ingredients of all Bible, uh, Bible covenants. Now, I'm not sure that this is, is, is uh, an exhaustive list. This is what I've been able to come up with so far as I've studied. If you Google uh, characteristics of biblical covenants, most people have a list of, of 5 or 6 of these. But I think the list is incomplete. I'm I'm suspecting possibly that 8 is correct because 8 is the is the number of new beginnings and new creation. It's the eighth day of the week is today because it's the first day of the new week. And so 8 always speaks of the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation and God's God's ultimate covenant is through the death uh, of Jesus Christ taking all the sanctions that we deserved under all the covenants upon himself to give us a newness of life. And the new order he's imposing on us is the gracious ability to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is, he's giving us the desire and the power to enforce the the law so that no longer are God's commandments something hostile to us that we could never do, we could never stop lusting or coveting or stealing, but they become the actual inner attitudes and motivations of our heart as we grow in Christ and mature in the Christian faith and we're set apart to God. That is the ultimate covenant. And it's something that's totally, as we're going to see as we go through this, God himself, every covenant that God makes, Man fails that, and so God himself dies. The covenant is not in force. It's also called a testament. Uh, you know, it, if uh, you know, my wife and I are trying to work toward, uh, the fe- by the age of 70, we'll be debt-free and we'll have a few properties and a little bit of savings so that we can leave something to this church and, and uh, to the elders of this church or something. But that testament won't be in, in a force until we die which I'm hoping is another 25 to 30 years, not next week. But we'll see. The Lord uh, be praised. He will do what he wants to do. So, eight ingredients. Um, number one, the, the covenant Lord identifies the parties of the covenant and declares the new order. That was in all the ancient Susan covenants. I'm the great you know, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the great Darius the Mede and so forth. And uh, all, ancient, all ancient civilizations had emperor worship, that is because the emperor embodied the state. Now, be given, biblical covenants, therefore, uh, begin with God's absolute lordship and his benevolent, that is, goodness, grace. He grants the covenant. He's the redeemer king. He identifies the recipients of the covenant, that is, who are the members, and he declares his intentions to make all things new, which is exactly the opposite of what revolutionary statist, uh, the the world's ways of doing things. They want to destroy, like Lenin said, if we have to kill millions of people to bring about this new great communistic order, uh, it's worth killing millions of people. Uh, Lenin and Stalin killed way more people than Hitler. Uh, Mao in China uh, killed t- really millions, millions of people to bring about a better order. So they're, the 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 suzerainty lords are always cruel taskmasters, and God killed one person, His Son, and as you. Receive his son and and grow in grace with his son, and you die and put yourself on the cross with him, he grants you the newness of life and the new order. He does not make all new things. He makes all things new you will have some of the same uh, giftedness. If you were a great musician and you become a Christian, you won't be a lousy musician, <laughs> uh, But you will have a new purpose for why you do your music. You won't necessarily have a new personality right away, although if your personality has been warped by various kinds of sins, over time as you grow in the Lord, your personality will change. You'll become more gracious and different things of this nature. But... Um, uh, he makes all things new is the, is the point. There's an old joke. I, I really don't have time for this, but I can't resist it. There's an old joke where the guy uh, breaks a couple fingers and he says to the doctor, he says, doctor, when these fingers heal, why be able to play the piano? And the doctor says, well, I don't see any reason why not. And he goes, well, that's great. Cause I could never play the piano before. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, if you couldn't play the piano before, and, you be, and, you, and he makes all things new, you'll still have to practice. He may give you a gift of music, but you'll have to uh, work on that to develop into, into a skill. It uh... anyway. Secondly, hierarchy. This is so important. This is what our society cannot stand. Even most Christians. But God always appoints leaders as covenant representatives in the New Testament. Jesus said, I'm going to send you apostles and prophets, some of whom you'll kill and so forth. And those apostles and prophets appointed in every church a plurality of people called the presbyteros. They were called the poimen, the shepherds. They were called the presbyteros and the episkopos, that is the overseers or elders. And if you wanted to be part of God's family, you had to join the family and just like uh, really good families always have a father, uh, if they haven't been, t- you know, knocked around by sin or whatever, uh, then, uh, you know, an ideal family by by God's grace uh, has a father and a mother and, and those two are like an, uh, they're like an eldership. And they consult together on how to raise the kids and, uh, manage the finances and and uh, serve the Lord and in, uh, in, in how to relate to the church because the church is a family of families. And that's why the most important thing in terms of raising up leadership in the church and so forth is to raise up a family of families that that has, uh, that have healthy marriages and uh, good financial management and good vocational calling skills and and uh, uh, are not given to drunkenness or whatever. Uh, Look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. So, God always appoints these leaders as His covenant representatives. When God's leaders are faithful, His people are protected. One of the reasons it's good to have a plurality of elders uh, is because, in the senior, when there's a strong senior pastor, it's too easy for the strong senior pastor to, to become an abusive person or a self promoting person. When it's shared, it's not, it's, it's much easier to keep perspective. That's one of the reasons God instituted all kinds of things like scripture readings and weekly communion and so forth to keep the emphasis on Christ, the ultimate elder of the elders. He's the ultimate shepherd of all the shepherds, and they belong to Him. Uh, God's faithful leaders must be servant leaders. When God's people are faithful to God, they obey their leaders. If you want to see anyone who's under God's judgment, they're usually backbiting, consuming, uh, criticizing their leadership. And usually not the way God has called them to do it. If you have a problem with leadership, you're supposed to go directly to them. But people who who, uh, don't want to follow God will will, uh, criticize the leadership to anyone except the leader they're criticizing. And that... All disobediences to the covenant have sanctions or, or curses that you're bringing upon yourself when you live that way. And people wonder why, like, gee, I have a good job, but I can't make finances meet. I, you know, I, I want to be married, but I can't seem to be mature enough to be married, nor can I find the right person to be married. And I, God doesn't seem to be blessing my overall life. Uh, look and see how you're relating to hierarchy. Are you walking in the light with whom you're supposed to walk in the light with? Are you critical behind people's back of, of, you know, you shouldn't be doing that against any brother? Because actually, all of us are hierarchy. If you criticize another Christian in your same church behind his back, you're criticizing Christ. Yet that has become like the most common thing that goes on in in the churches today. Gossip and backbiting and whispering and criticizing are the acceptable Christian sins. Thirdly, all covenants have ethical laws. The central section of the covenant defines how God's people are to live so that they can be his holy nation. Holy means set apart. Leviticus 19.2 says, you shall be set apart or holy because I'm holy. That's quoted exactly word for word in 1 Peter 1.16, so it's not just old covenant, it's all covenants. You must be holy because the covenant Lord is holy. And you can't be rightly related to him, enjoying the blessings and protections of the covenant, unless you call upon him to give you the grace and the desire and the power. The best thing about God's covenants is that he has already factored in that we can't do them. And so you just say, I'm not holy, I don't have right attitudes, I don't have right motivations. Uh, We love because you first loved us. Show me how much you love me. Show me what it means that Christ died for me while I was still an enemy. Show me the grace of God, and you'll respond, we love because he first loved us. You'll respond with wanting to be more like him. And if you look at anyone who has besetting sins that they struggle with over and over and over, go go back to the first point of the gospel. That's where the problem always is. They have not been able to accept and believe and receive that God demonstrated his love for them, Romans 5, in that while you were yet enemies of God, while you were hating him, while you were indifferent to him. By the way, if you know anything about love, if you're married, you probably do, uh, Maybe. Uh, uh, love and hate are close together. You know, when people break up and they have a relationship and there's a lot of bonding that goes on and they've given themselves to each other in sexual intimacy and in other ways, uh emotional emotionally, and they've shared their lives together, and then it falls apart. There's like that Shakespeare said, hell hath no fury like a woman's corn, and vice versa. Hate is closer to love. What real biblical hate is, is being indifferent. And the truth of the matter is what God is saving us from, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods beside yourself. Jesus summed up the first three or four commandments by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And we have spent a lifetime trying to ignore him. What it means to become a Christian and come under the new covenant is to say god i haven't cared i've just been a worshiper of self and a lover of self and frankly a lot of things aren't working exactly right in my life because it's really out of order come in and bring the new order of the new heavens the new earth the new christ make me a new man the new the second adam the born again man and cause me to have peace and joy and order or change my priorities about why I have whatever I have uh you know you uh, change my reason I do my music or I do my hobby of fish aquarium or the reason what I do with my money change all this for your glory that's the new covenant and it and uh it your life will never have any meaning or fulfillment until you get to that point i got to move on uh Again, God's relationship with his people is ethical. We must be righteous to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Uh, there's blessings and there's curses. And you, the whole point is you cannot be righteous in and of yourself. You have to call upon the, the, the one who fulfills the covenant. Fourthly, all covenants have oaths. God takes the oath of the covenant or, and he, there are vows publicly before God and man. That's why we have vows at wedding ceremonies. Confession. There's a reason why all churches through since the first century have had people make public declarations of Christ at their water baptism. I'm saying I no longer try to please men. I don't care what the world thinks of me. Lots of cultures that uh have that aren't as Christianized as ours once was understand this way better. You talk to most Islam most Muslims, most Hindus, uh etc. Most people, what they uh, they understand, boy, I'm I'm maybe willing to read a book or two to think about what this Christianity. I don't want to convert because the idol of wanting to please men will be killed. You will not be accepted by your family, your culture around you, and so forth. I'm glad in some ways it's getting darker in America. I hope, because it gives an opportunity for the church to become lighter, which we need. Not that I'm rejoicing in darkness. So jump down to where it says, uh, Genesis uh, 22, 8. And it says, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. That is the lamb for a burnt offering. So man can never, uh, in fact, jump up to Genesis 15. Boy, I'm going to... Try to crank this out. He said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite. So this is God asking, a, this is Abraham asking God, show me a sign that I'm going, that, this, that all these blessings you've promised me in the covenant are going to happen. And God tells him, bring all these animals, because they're without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, and Abraham kept driving them away. Uh, and then it came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. What God is saying is, is that Abraham could not walk through the middle of these. God himself walked through the middle of these things. God himself became the assurance. Uh, in the one of the main points of the Bible is that the recipients of the covenant in all covenants, starting with Adam, all the way to the new covenant, always fail in the covenant. You cannot be saved by, by self-initiative, performance-based Christianity. But God Himself provides the Lamb that is God Himself is the Lamb, and God Himself gives you freely His righteousness and beyond giving you justification, He gives you sanctification, He empowers you to live the covenant fifthly ser- covenant all covenants have ceremonies of celebration, all biblical covenants are sealed with ceremonies celebrations of enactment and reinforcement one of the major signs that the church got off base is it stopped doing weekly communion that never happened until uh, in the first 1850 years among any kind of christians but as the church began to lose its way in in the name of being more biblical and literal and begin to un- misunderstand the, the, the literary nature of the, of the symbolism of the scriptures, they began to think that the communion supper is some uh, empty ceremony. God's covenantal ceremonies are never empty. It makes a whole lot of difference whether you get married before God and in public with Christian vows, or you just live together. The one, the second will bring curses and sanctions upon your whole life. And the first one will bring blessings upon your whole life. And every covenant has ceremonies of enactment and reinforcement. That is renewal, covenant renewal. And so when we uh, enter the things of Christ, we go through two covenants that are one covenant. God's math is very different. I'm going to run over a little bit today. I'm sorry, but I'm, I want to finish this message. The, uh, the two, two things are one. Uh, when, when people get married, there's actually a two-way covenant where the two are one. There's actually a three-way covenant where God, the husband, and wife become one. God, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, the first idea of the Christian faith, the first doctrine of the Christian faith, the most important point is that God is three persons in one being. God's math is different than our math. God the Son is two, pers- two persons. He's 100% man, and he's 100% God. That is two, two uh, entities in one being, one person, and uh, all the way through. So uh, in, in, in entering the Christian life, the first covenantal ceremony is called Christian water baptism. When you've received the covenant, when you've repented, when you've became a Christian, um, you go through the waters of baptism, declaring and confessing publicly that I'm going to be identified with Christ and his people. You also uh, have some people lay hands on you and you receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, complete with the signs and wonders of a prayer language and so forth. And that is 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. But those two covenants, those two covenant ceremonies are actually one covenant ceremony. That's why Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 calls uh, one of the foundations of our faith instructions about baptisms, plural, where Ephesians 4 says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Because baptism in the Holy Spirit and baptism in water, the two are one, and they're the one ceremony of being covenanted to the people of God. Now, every covenant has ceremonies of renewal. After you've done that, you, sh- you renew the covenant on the first day of the week, which is the first day of creation, the new creation. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. He poured out the Holy Spirit on the first day of the week. And you renew your covenant with Christ uh, at the covenant table. And it's not some empty thing. It's the high point of our worship. Lastly, signs and symbols that uh, biblical covenants always have boundaries stipulated by laws, and they're always depicted in covenant signs and symbols. That's why Christians have crosses, crucifixes, uh, etc. Um, sanctions. We've talked a lot about that. You can read the if you want to read the whole sanctions. I've given you some scriptures there, especially read Deuteronomy 28 because all of that was fulfilled uh because Israel continued to rebel against their loving covenant Lord. Lastly, all covenants have principles of succession. And that uh that is so important. Uh Today, I've been meeting with a young man lately that I'm really enjoying the relationship, and he's in a a ministry that focuses on leading high school students to Christ. And I'm always wondering, why are local churches having campus ministries and high school ministries? Because the whole Bible is about the seed. I once had a guy tell me he quit doing campus ministry because he got too old, you'll be too old when you get older than Caleb and you're older than 120 or so to do campus ministry. Of course, it's always about the next generation. You know, the most important members of our church are uh Israel and and uh Samuel and uh Nathan and Tiffany, if they find out it's going to be a boy, they're going to name the new boy Second Samuel. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, uh, the reason reason we have a few gray-haired guys in their 50s, but most of us are in our mid-30s on down, is because you guys are the next generation to shape the culture and the world. And if you get radical for Christ... Uh, God can do a lot through you covenantally. covenantally. All covenants have principles of succession, of handing the covenant to the next generation. Amen.